If you have a child with type 1 diabetes, whether they were diagnosed five days ago or five years ago, you continue to have questions. These are the questions about the emotional side of living with diabetes, the questions about how to parent diabetes. I'm Joanne Robb, a psychotherapist and fellow T1D mom, and I've been parenting diabetes for almost 15 years. In this podcast, I'm here to answer your questions about the emotional and relational challenges that come with being a caregiver for a child with type 1 diabetes. Before we dive in, I have to remind you that I'm not a doctor and nothing that I offer here should be considered medical advice. If you want to make any changes to the way you or your child is managing their type 1, please be sure to check in with your doctor or medical team. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today, I have two guests. I have a mom who came on to ask me some questions about substance use for her T1D teen, drinking and marijuana use. And because I am not an expert in this area, I invited Justin Altshuler, who is a doctor. He has a practice which specializes both in addiction and type 1, and he has type 1 himself. And he's the medical director of Diabetes Youth and Families, which is the Bay Area organization that hosts all the camps, all the diabetes camps. So I want to welcome both of these wonderful guests who are here. And I'm going to start by introducing Sarah. So Sarah, why don't you tell us why you're here, like who your child is, how long they've had type one and why you're here. Just give a quick introduction. And then Justin, I'm going to pass it to you so you can introduce yourself as well. Hi. So my name's Sarah. I have a 17-year-old son, junior in high school now, and he's had type one since he was four. So we've we've navigated a lot of things with type one, but now we're on the next hurdle is drugs and alcohol. And I had some very specific questions about how type one relates to that. I'm a realist and I want him to sort of experiment with this and sort of figure out, you know, how to learn how to become a social drinker, a moderate drinker like we are, you know, with family and friends, enjoy a glass of wine, et cetera. But I want to help him navigate that path and figure out how exactly to bring type one into it. If there are any strategies for, you know, right now we've advised him eat a meal before you, if you're going to have anything to drink, we've tried to talk to him about defined carb counts, like is beer better than a mixed drink, but I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm sort of making it up as I'm going along. And I was looking for some, some expert advice. Great. Thank you, Sarah, for coming onto the show. Justin, do you want to introduce yourself? And I realized I didn't give your website. If people want to find you, it's sequoiamd.com and you'll be able to find that in the show notes. But Justin, let me let you introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm excited to be here. I have the private practice and I recently started a newsletter about a fair number of things, among them sort of how to navigate difficult situations and Type one certainly falls into that category, as does drinking and, and substance use. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. And I'd love to kind of just have a conversation about talking to, to kids and teens and anyone really about drinking, because there are some real specific challenges that come with type one diabetes and alcohol. Great. Thank you, Dr. Justin, for being here. It's lovely of you to give your time. Sarah, why don't you, you had some very specific questions. Why don't you just start with one of them and we'll let Justin weigh in. So one of them is, you know, is beer better than mixed drinks? You know, I always thought that there's like a defined <clears throat> carb count, you know, you can versus a mixed drink with usually has some sort of sugar or juice. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on what audience we're talking to, right? So, when I talk about this, I'm usually really tailoring this to 
teenagers and young adults. So I would give this, you know, starting maybe age 14, 15, up to age 22, 23. And in that age range, the thing that I worry about the most is not carbs and high blood sugars, but really low blood sugars. So I don't want to get too into the physiology, but I do think there's a little bit of physiology that's really important to understand. So you know, we always think about type 1 being a problem where there's not insulin and giving the insulin to bring glucose down. That insulin that's a basal rate, right, and we all know about basal rates, is working on some sugar in the blood, right? So the body is releasing sugar into the bloodstream a little bit at a time that that basal insulin is working on. And that sugar that's released into the blood comes from the liver. It comes from glycogen that's stored in the liver and then the liver slowly releases that into the bloodstream. What happens when someone drinks alcohol is the alcohol basically goes to the liver and then the liver becomes preoccupied with processing the alcohol and it kind of stops releasing sugar into the bloodstream while someone is drinking and then while the alcohol is active in their body and then for actually several hours after that, and the amount of time that it, that the liver sort of stops with glycogen release varies person to person. It varies on how much someone's drank, et cetera. But the important thing to remember is that it doesn't really do that, or it doesn't do that the way it normally does in the presence of alcohol and then after drinking. So that has two or three really important implications. The first one is that People have a lot of lows when they drink, and if they have highs, to me, it's kind of a so what. The reason that lows are so concerning when someone is drinking is that when someone has a low, right, we've we've all seen our kids or, or for those that have type 1, where you get that low feeling, right, that low response, the shaky hands, the sweatiness, et cetera. Well, physiologically, there's a few things that are happening, but most of those symptoms that people experience when they're low is actually adrenaline. It's, it's adrenaline release that causes all those symptoms. The other thing that happens is that there's a big glycogen dump. There's a big sugar release from the liver to combat that low. And so every parent has seen their kids bounce from like 65 to 240 with barely any carbs. And they're, they're like, what happened? Well, what happened was physiology. The liver is releasing that glycogen <laughs> and that glycogen is what's bringing blood sugar up, right? The challenge is, is that when someone has been drinking, that normal body rescue mechanism isn't there, again, because the liver's ability to release sugar has been impaired by the alcohol. So not only are people at, with type 1 at higher risk of having lows while drinking, but the body's sort of natural rescue mechanism for correcting those lows has also been taken out of commission by the alcohol. So, And then the third piece that becomes, I think, scary is that this persists for quite some time. So what usually happens when people drink, they drink, they, you know, if you're a teenager and they're having a lot to drink, they drink and then they go to bed. And then after they go to bed for the next 10 hours, the insulin is still there. It's still being delivered, but the glycogen release from the liver is not. And it's that sustained hypoglycemia overnight that we get really scared about, especially because even if there is significant hypoglycemia, the body's rescue mechanism for pulling out of that is impaired. And so I know this is sort of a roundabout answer to this, but when I'm thinking about, when I'm talking to kids or young adults, teenagers about drinking, 
I actually tell them, I don't care about the carbs. In fact, I encourage them to have carbs and a lot of carbs because I don't really care if they wake up high. And I tell them that explicitly, right? I'm like, I want you to wake up at 300. That's not a problem for me. I don't want you to not wake up. And that's really the risk that we get concerned about when there's a lot of alcohol involved. So beer, I mean, we can talk about, I, I would put sort of mixed drinks versus beer in the category of managing drinking when kids decide to drink. But in terms of which is better versus not, I just, I, it doesn't mean that much to me, honestly. And there's, you know, I would say that there's sort of a separate conversation that I can have with adults who really know how to moderate their alcohol use, right? About how do you manage blood sugars in the context of a glass of wine at dinner. But when I'm talking to young adults and adolescents in particular, that's much less of my concern and much more of my concern is sort of a safety issue. Dr. Justin, you just said something I want to back up to. You said beer versus a mixed drink would be something you might discuss when you're talking about managing drinking versus just this idea of staying safe. Can you tell me and Sarah and me what you mean by that? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I think I want to sort of acknowledge up front that every family is going to have different approaches to talking to their kids about drinking. And, and that is, that's fine. Right. And that, that sort of, I mean, there's a huge, there's a huge range there. One of the things that I both sort of as someone that takes care of kids with type one and an addiction doc, I really think with adolescents of how do we delay when they start drinking and when they do start drinking, how do we decrease the amount that they have at a sitting? Right. And I, Sarah, like you, am under no illusions that what I say is going to change or stop someone from drinking. But it really is how do we try and keep them in as safe a zone as possible? Right. And so I usually talk about, you know, with mixed drinks, the problem is, and this is, you know, sort of general advice, right? Type one or not, you don't know what's in it. You don't necessarily know who mixed it for you. And it's, you know, if you don't know what's in it, it's a really quick way of taking in a lot of alcohol very quickly and not recognizing it. And so I think from that perspective, I would say, yeah, beer is probably preferred. But I I think that that's much more in terms of trying to mitigate how much alcohol someone is actually putting in their body, as opposed to it's better or worse. The ethyl alcohol, the, the, the ethanol, right? is the same in beer versus in vodka versus in wine versus in anything else. So it's not the al- it's not that the alcohol somehow changes depending on what the drink is. That makes sense. Or does totally. that to clarify that more? Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Sarah, does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the advice I'm going to give my non-type 1 kid as well is stick with things that are known quantities that, you know, are not this question mark as to how much alcohol is in them. So just getting back to the physiology, and this all makes perfect sense, that you want to really avoid the lows. That's the big deal. But how do you practically do that? Because I'm thinking of if you had a responsible adult, you could say, set a a temp basil, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's... When I'm when I'm giving this talk to kids, we probably spend 20 or 30 minutes on this. So I'll, I want to just kind of try and hit the highlights, right? So on pretty, you know, most kids, well, not most, but many kids now are on some type of smart pump. So I tend to tell them put in exercise mode before they go out because I'd rather that they start at a higher number. I tell them that they need to eat before they start, which is generally sound advice. 
I tell them that when they start drinking, I don't want them to start that with a blood sugar below 200 or 250, somewhere in there. There's another big challenge, right? So we know that counting carbs and entering boluses and thinking through dosing is difficult when someone is sober. So thinking through that when you're drunk is well nigh impossible, right? And so I usually tell them while you are drinking, you just don't bolus. Like, and again, I don't really care if you end up high. I want you to go through the night with a blood sugar that's high. That's fine. Sometimes kids get really anxious about that. And they're like, no, 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 no. I have to bolus. And so I say, look, if you're going to bolus, enter in half the number of carbs that you think you otherwise would. And let that sort of be what, you know, what you're entering in the pump and what the pump is bolusing for. Can I ask you a question? You said they should eat. You might have more here. I might be interrupting you. Yeah. I'm sorry, Justin. You said eat before they start. Would you have them bolus for that? I think it depends. I mean, I would say I, I would sort of draw an analogy to probably things that kids are more familiar with, which is exercise, right? And so if a kid is going into playing a soccer game and their blood sugar is 80 and they have 45 grams of carb, they very well might not bolus for that, right? Sure. Yep. If they're going into the soccer game and their blood sugar is 250 and they have 45 grams of carb, they very well might bolus for that. So I think that I think a little bit more about getting into the party, drinking, whatever scene with a blood sugar that's reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. or, or on the high end, rather than giving an exact amount of this is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And part of the benefit there, right, is hopefully they're still sober when they're doing that, which yes. means they can think through it a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's other things, right? Like, so I'll say to the kids that it's a good idea to be eating carbs while you're drinking, right? There's usually snacks at the parties or wherever they are. Like, you should be eating them, right? You should be looking at your Dexcom or checking your blood sugar. And if you're going low, you need to be taking carbs in, right? I talk pretty explicitly, again, about trying to minimize the amount. So there's a whole sort of list of strategies that we can talk about in terms of how to handle social pressure and not drink a lot, right? Like you can, you know, and, and as we can get more into this, but you can get a beer, you can open it, you can pour half of it out and you can walk around with that all night. Like, you know, no one is going to be checking and seeing how much beer you're drinking. And so for some kids, right, that ability to feel, to feel socially fit in, but not actually have to drink is really important, right? For some kids, that's really what's driving a lot of the, the drinking behaviors. They don't want to be the, the, the one that sticks out. And so there are a lot of things that they can do to try and keep themselves comfortable and not actually be taking putting a bunch of alcohol in their body. Mm -hmm. I have a question though about kids who actually do want to get drunk because I know yes. those kids, right? I yep. know those type one kids. I know of some families yep. who practice drinking with their kids at home and those kids can yep. be more or less responsible. And I know some kids who just kind of go wild at some point and yep. drink a lot. So how do you recommend Justin staying medically safe or as safe as possible in with a kid who's really, you know, just drinking to get drunk? Yeah. Well, and I, so I think that that's really important to recognize, right? And I, I think that recognizing that spectrum is actually probably the first step when you're thinking about talking to your kid, right? Is, is your kid someone who is asking this because they are going to go do that? Or is your kid asking this because they're trying to figure out what they want their relationship with alcohol to be? So I think if there's someone that are that is going to get drunk because that's their intention, then it's a lot of the things that we just talked about, right? In terms of 
eating carbs, um, not bolusing while they're drinking, setting a temp target. Um, I think there's a couple other things that I would sort of bring up as well that I that are important from a safety perspective. So one is kids will often say, what about just disconnecting my pump? And I, I have seen a lot of people in DKA, often very severe DKA, because to avoid going low, they disconnect their pump, they go drink, they pass out somewhere, and then, you know, they, they wake up eight hours later with fluorid DKA. So I think, so that's one thing that I tell people explicitly not to do. The other couple of things about safety is I tell, I think the kids when they're, I mean, this is again, true type one or not, but particularly with type one, they need a buddy or a wingman. So you need someone who's at the party with you that you're drinking with that knows you and knows type one, right? So it's not enough for them to know that you have type one um, because if they know that you have type one and then they look at your Dexcom and they say, oh, 50, that's fine, right? Like that doesn't cut it, right? So they, they, have to, they have to know that you have type one. They have to know to be able to look at your Dexcom and then they have to actually be able to interpret that and figure out what to do with it, right? The other thing that is, I think, really tricky and part of the reason I think it's so important to have a, a, you know, a wingman or a buddy is that at a party, if someone's passed out in the corner, everyone's gonna assume that they're drunk. No one's gonna think that their blood sugar is low. And so you need someone there that's gonna be able to check on that kid <laughs> and make sure that it's not, that they're not sitting in the corner because they're low, right? And then the other piece that's really concerning is, so we talked sort of at the beginning about the physiology of this and glycogen release. Well glucagon works via glycogen. So the, the rescue med that we think about for Lowe's works by forcing glycogen release. So in the presence of alcohol, glucagon is a very ineffective treatment for hypoglycemia. And the only real effective treatment if someone is not with it enough, either from the alcohol or from low blood sugar to take things by mouth is to do an IV with glucose. Is that true also of vaccine? Yes, Baximi is- It works is the same way. Okay, It ahead. works the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so that means that the kid's gonna have, that, that someone's gonna have to organize calling EMS or, or getting the, your son or daughter to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And and that sort of raises a whole other set of questions about, you know, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna get in trouble, like all of that, all of those things. Um, and so there's, I, I think part of this is that to keep your kids safe while drinking, there's actually a lot of prep work that has to happen before the drinking starts in order to sort of set them up to make sure that they stay safe. And I, I've given this talk to parents a lot too. The overriding concern that the parents have is that I want my kids to be safe, right? Over and over and over again. The overriding concern that the kids have is something else. I'm going to get in trouble. They don't want to know. I mean, there's there's a million different things. And so one thing that I really encourage parents to do when talking to their kids is to just make your intention clear. My concern is your safety. And that is sort of number one. And to make sure that that's really clear to your kids. I love that. I actually also heard you say a little while back, you have a lot of amazing guidance here, Dr. Justin, but you also said, is the kid asking about this because they want to know how to stay safe while they're drinking or because they actually just want to go drink? And right. I, I like that you're inserting the idea that the child is even asking, right? Because right. If, if a teen comes to us and is asking, 
that yep. means that there's some relationship there. And maybe they're not asking us <laughs> as the parents, right? Maybe they're asking right. you as the medical professional, Justin, but I think that's important. And so we need to make the most of that by not shutting down that conversation and by being as open as we possibly yep. can be to what it is that they need. So we continue to build safety there, even though we as adults, and Justin, probably you less than than I would or less than Sarah would, but we as adults might feel a little anxious, right? Because they're asking yep. about engaging in a pretty unsafe behavior. Sarah, how does this right. all land for you? Yeah, no, this is great. This is exactly what I needed to hear. Just a follow-up question on the buddy. Because I know, you know, my son's had it since he's four. He's always been super independent with it. I got this is the, the vibe he has. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, his friends know he doesn't hide it or anything. Um, I don't know to what extent they know uh, how to look at his Dexcom or what that means. And so right. how do we sort of coach him in terms of here's what you need your buddies to know. Like they need to be right. able to pick up your Dexcom and look at it and be like, anything under and what I don't know what the number is like anything under one you know obviously if he's not acting normally that's an immediate concern and you know call 911 depending on what the issue is <laughs> but right. if his sugar's okay maybe he is just drunk and don't call 911 if his sugar's 250 right. he's just but what's the practical advice on buddy training yeah so i mean i, I think that you know, hopefully most parents have conversations with their kid around this in one way or another, right? And again, if we take this out of the type one realm, I hope most parents have a conversation with their kids about drinking and driving, right? That it's just, there's just a hard line that you don't cross. I don't care. And I would sort of think about this in a similar way, right? About like, I want to give you son daughter, right? The freedom to go out and do things. And in order for that to be okay, I need to have confidence that you're going to be safe. And part of that is that you don't get in a car when you're drunk, right? Part of that is you don't get in a car with someone else when they're drunk. Part of that is that if you're drinking, you have someone that can look at your Dexcom, right? And I think it's really about dedicating an individual, right? Because diffuse responsibility means no responsibility. So there's someone for that night that's going to sort of help you or two someones, right? And they're both going to help you. And if the blood sugar is below, and you, I mean, the exact number, I don't think is super relevant, 100, 150, whatever, that you make me eat, right? And that I might not want to, but I'm agreeing with you now that I will, <laughs> right? And that if I'm kind of incoherent or not making good decisions and my blood sugar is, you know, above 100 or above 150, you know that I'm drunk and that's why I'm acting this way. But if I'm 60 or, or 70, that you don't assume that the way I'm acting is just because I'm drunk. It might be because I'm low and in which case you need to make sure that I, I get some food or get a Coke or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Justin, you said you're hoping that parents have a conversation with their kids about drinking and driving and with their type one kids about this, about safe drinking. Yep. And I want to name that I think it's actually many conversations over time. Yes. I think this is a great dinner conversation starting at age actually quite young. I have a funny moment where I was yes. talking to my son about this stuff in the car and my daughter, nine years younger, said, mommy, do you know that I'm here in the car? Like I shouldn't be yep. hearing this. And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely yep. sure. Yes, I'm glad you're here in the car hearing this. So I think yes. this is the kind of thing that should be cycled around pretty regularly. 
It should be open, honest conversation as often as your kids can stomach it, basically, so that they're familiar with it and they have a language to speak with you about it in, right? Because if we are brave enough to open these conversations, then what our children know is that everything can be discussed, Mm -hmm. right? If we leave it for them to open the conversation, they're not sure what, how we're going to respond. And so it's, the onus is on us to keep opening it and opening it and opening it, creating lots of safety and actually being really curious. I think that's where that conversation is when they're super young, right? Like curiosity about their interest, about their curiosity, right? And then it morphs into curiosity about their behavior, which they may or may not be willing to share. And mostly kids, in my experience, like you could double what they tell you is the actual behavior. But that's what I think about having the conversation. It's so many conversations. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I, I'm really glad that you make it because that's actually, that's that's what I think in my head, but it's not what I say, right? This is not a conversation when your kid turns 16 or when they get mm-hmm. to high school. This is a frequent conversation. And sometimes it's totally tangential, right? Like sometimes you just sort of glance on it for two minutes at the dinner table and you move on. And sometimes it becomes big and involved. And so that's an excellent point. And it, it does start young, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not it, it's not a taboo subject. It's just part of the mm-hmm. part of what they mm-hmm. learn. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more answers. Right now, your child's type 1 diagnosis feels like the biggest blow ever. You feel worried for their health and watchful all the time of pretty much everything, blood sugar, food, exercise. If your child was diagnosed in the last year and you want to get back to the calm and sturdy parent you were before diagnosis, the place to start is with Sweet Talks After Diagnosis coaching program designed just for parents like you by me, a fellow T1D mom and experienced therapist and diabetes coach, after diagnosis will help you find a faster path to calm. When you're doing better with diabetes, your child will do better too. To find out more, go to diabetessweettalk.courses. Sarah, did you have other questions? I feel like you might've had questions about weed use too. I did. I'm hoping that we could pivot now if that's okay. And I'm just wondering, is there much known about type one and marijuana use? Now it's legalized in California. There's more and more people using it. Is there any specific, anything that people should be doing differently that we should be advising kids to do differently if they're smoking right. marijuana? Or having so, edibles. Wait, I want to name this or, also. Or edibles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Do you bowl this for, I mean, hopefully you're not having, you know, so many weed gummies. gummies. <laughs> Right, right. So, you know, I think that there's probably two or three different thoughts that I have with this. So when it comes to thinking about marijuana, the physiology is different, right? And so I, it does not have the same physiology in terms of glucose metabolism that alcohol has. And I think it's really important to just be clear about that. And that's, so I think that's sort of the big overriding thing in bucket number one. I think bucket number two that I think about with marijuana is that everything that I said about generally not thinking through things particularly well when someone is drinking is also true with marijuana. So the ability to accurately count carbs and plan what the next hour and a half is and predict blood sugars is also quite impaired when someone is smoking or eating marijuana. And so, again, I think I tend to air on the conservative side with that and say, look, I'd rather you be a bit on the hyperglycemic than the hypoglycemic side, but it doesn't have the same scary stuff that that alcohol has in terms of glucose metabolism. 
The third and fourth things that I would really bring up with marijuana is that there is a real perception, particularly among kids, that if it's legal, it must be okay. Or that like the only people that think marijuana is a problem are like these people that are lame, right? And we do know that early exposure to marijuana is not good for developing brains. And so I, I think that it is important that we really push back on that perception that it's not it's not like, no, you can't. It's that I'm really concerned about what you doing this now at age 16 is going to do to your brain versus doing this at age 23 or 24 and or 21 or, I mean, just again, trying to push it out um, for later. So, so I think that that's another thing that is, that should be a part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece sort of related to that is that the the marijuana products that are on the market now are so much more potent than what has been over the past 20 or 30 years, right? So the way that I sort of describe this, you know, a lot of the research that we have about marijuana is fairly old. It would sort of be like if, if you handed someone a tablespoonful of alcohol and had them drink the alcohol and then inferred everything that we know about alcohol based on the dose of a tablespoon, right? It's It doesn't work that way, right? And so the amount of THC or CBD or the other active compounds in marijuana that kids, well, that anyone that's using marijuana now is exposing their body to is depending on your reference point, 10, 50, 100 times more than it was. And that that kind of a difference in dose, I mean, that's tremendous, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the effect of that on a young developing brain is really significant. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think that my, my usual strategy about talking about this is not to say, therefore, you can't, but it's just to be really honest about that and to say, in large part, we don't actually know what this does to your brain, right? Mm-hmm. And then the last piece that I think I will sort of touch on with marijuana, although it applies equally to alcohol, it is always hard to be an adolescent. I think it is particularly hard to be an adolescent right now. And with substance abuse, I usually describe a push and a pull, right? So the the pull is I like the way the chemical makes me feel, whatever that chemical is. And the the push is I don't like reality. I don't like being sober, right? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of kids with type one, they really don't like sobriety. They don't like their day to day because of all of the psychosocial challenges that go with it that you know, I'm sure you talk about <laughs> every time you record one of these podcasts, right? <laughs> I think when I'm talking to kids about substance use, alcohol, marijuana, or whatever, it is important to think about the drug itself and what it does but it's also really important to think about that underlying context about why kids feel drawn to use it and to try and like Joe said, like keep that a very open dialogue because part of that is very typical adolescent behavior with high, you know, high risk seeking, high novelty seeking, all of that. But for particularly with kids with type one who have abnormal rates of mental illness, abnormal rates of depression, anxiety, et cetera, like, the substances can really be an escape valve from that. And that, you know, from a longer term perspective is something that I, that I worry about. And, um, and so I, I think it's really important to sort of bring that piece into the conversation with the kids about substance use as well. Mm, That's so beautiful. 
right? Yeah. Because it's a question of like, it's hard to be X. It's hard to be this, this kid with type one. And so you're looking at what would be the, you know, that's not just conforming behavior, right? That's not Correct. just I'm in college and now it would be fun to get drunk and it's fun to experiment with this. And I'm going to take a little detour into it. You're talking about kids who really want, um, you said escape valve. And I like that language, right? Because it's just hard to be a kid with type one. Um, mm -hmm. And Correct. so it, it, it uh, it emphasizes so much what I feel like my messaging is all the time about how it's so important to have like a lot of mental health as at the forefront of the type one experience, because there are a lot of ways that our kids can turn left that we want them to not turn left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that's great. I love the idea of the push and the pull. Mm -hmm very clear way to talk to kids like what's attracting you to this why is it yeah is that you want to feel differently or is it that you want to escape or maybe yeah. both i mean it might be a combination of both you know mm -hmm. i think sarah that i would actually make that an open question i wouldn't give them the answer so quick mm -hmm. i would ask them what their experience is like when they're using what's it like for them what does it do for them what feels good about it is there anything they don't like about it because my guess is there are some things there too um and wait and see right what what percolates up um as you're asking the question and like if you're getting nothing to tap gently and say i wonder if sometimes it's hard to have diabetes so it's easier to be drinking and escaping from that does that ever happen for you right mm -hmm. but i wouldn't present it as a multiple choice answer because you're going to lose a lot of data mm -hmm. when you ask the question mm -hmm. i like that Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Justin, the other thing you said that I love, and you said it both about alcohol and about um, marijuana use is the idea of, I, I think I'm putting my language to this, but the idea of a speed bump, right? And constructing speed bumps to just slow them down, both in terms of quantity and also in terms of when. Um, and yep. I'm just wondering, in your experience, do you have any extra thoughts about that. I don't think you really do. I think it's just really about being straightforward. And I think I personally, as a therapist, think it's about asking a lot of questions and making the conversation open, because I think that creates its own health and safety. But I wanted to see if you have any additional thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, we could probably devote a whole podcast to it, right? Um, maybe we should I, do I that sometime. <laughs> maybe we should, right? I think that Part of it comes down to when you start having these conversations, right? And you, like you very eloquently said earlier, this is not a conversation that starts once when they hit high school. Hopefully this is a conversation that you've been having in various forms for a long time and continue having, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the talk, it's talks. So I think that that's one. I think that the second thing that I think is really helpful is to very explicitly acknowledge that this is not something that you as the parent have control over, right? This is like, like, where is locus of control, right? And the locus of control is really in the child's decision making. Mm -hmm. It's not in your decision making. And I think that's helpful for parents' mental health. Mm -hmm. And it is also helpful actually for the kids, or the, I shouldn't call them kids, the adolescents and the young adults to take ownership of this, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. the way that I usually talk about this is like, look, you are going to be making your own decisions about this. The only way that it is reasonable for you to make the right decision for you is for you to have all the information. You can't make a good decision for you if you don't have the information that you need 
to make that decision, right? I mean, this kind of goes back to in medicine, we think about informed consent. Informed consent is knowing the different options ahead of you and what the likely consequences of those options are going to be. And so I think paradoxically, as a parent, if you can think about kind of surrendering the control and trusting your kid, paradoxically, I think that that actually helps a little bit, right? And it helps to sort of lay the groundwork for, yes, this is something that they are going to have to take on. And this is their own choice that they're going to have to make. The reason I think that that's helpful is that it takes it out of the realm of rebelling against mom and dad. And I'm going to do this because you're telling me not to, right? Mm -hmm. And it puts them in the realm of, well, you need to make a choice about this. What's your choice going to be? My sense is, is that that becomes a much more helpful framework through which to talk about it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really challenging, and I I will just sort of remind you guys know this, but I'll I'll remind anyway, is that part of adolescence is that adolescents seek, they view risk differently, Mm -hmm. right? And they view risk-taking behavior differently, and they view novelty-seeking differently. And their brains are not fully myelinated. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. And so the implication of that, and teenagers are very, very concrete, right? Like they are gaining the ability to think abstractly, but they don't always think abstractly without prompting. And so I think it really is helpful to help them sort of walk through step by step in a concrete way. This is where this chain of events will lead. That is where that chain of events will lead because their brains are not in a place where, where that, that happens naturally. And it feels kind of awkward sometimes to really prompt them, okay, So you go to a party and you get drunk and your ride leaves and there's a car there with the key, then what do you do, right? Mm -hmm. And to really kind of help them think through that ahead of time so that you've primed the pump on that kind of Mm -hmm. decision-making so that when they're in that situation, they've had the opportunity to think through those situations really concretely. I love that from a, a risk situation. I also love that from an exiting situation right now we're an exiting strategy. You talked about this earlier, you can take the beer, you can pour out half, you can walk around with it, giving kids language and options for how they can exit situations where they don't feel safe is also something that I think they need our help and support with. Yeah. And and I think it's a great, I mean, it's a great point with diabetes, a great point with substance use, a great point broadly, right, is that when we're in that moment, we often suffer from a constipation of imagination. We see (laughs) option one, we see maybe option two, but there, in, in reality, there's there's 10 options in front of us, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you help people see the full range of the options that they have, not just the first thing that their mind grabs onto? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Sarah, any last questions? No, I think everything's covered. Thank you so much, both of you. This is Your insights are just so valuable. Thanks, Sarah, for for prompting this and asking. And Dr. Justin, thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. Thanks again for listening today. If you want answers to your questions about parenting a kid with type 1, I'd like to invite you to join our live recording sessions so you can ask your questions in person. Not only will you get the support you need and deserve, but through the podcast, you'll be helping other T1D parents to know that they're not alone with the challenges they're facing. To join one of my live recording sessions, simply go to www.diabetessweettalk.com and click the banner at the top of the page to register. Again, go to www.diabetessweettalk.com and click the banner at the top of the page to register.